Please remain standing for the reading of God's word from Matthew chapter 6, verses 6 through 13. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is God's word. What does Jesus want for you? The answer is found in the evening before Jesus died, both in the upper room as he gave this full discourse of teaching of his disciples so that they would be prepared to live a life moving forward after Christ was gone. And he says this, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you, that your joy may be full. What Jesus wants for you is your complete joy. That's why he taught the Upper Room Discourse. Again, he prays later that night his, his final comprehensive prayer for what he really wants in his disciples and those who would follow his disciples. He prays this, But now I am coming to you. These things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Jesus is praying that you might have complete joy. That complete joy, though, is the joy that Jesus Christ himself has. And what is that joy? It's the intimate relationship among the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit of love, joy, and mutual glorification. Jonathan Edwards argues in his, his treatise on why God would create the world, and one pastor summarizes his argument as this. The only reason God would have for creating us was not to get cosmic love and joy of relationship, because he already had that, but to share it. You see, what Edwards is pointing out is that God didn't create us because he needed us to have full joy. He already had that. Because love is at the very center and core of his being, he created us so that he could share that joy. And that's what Jesus Christ is praying for us. And so if he is going to give us a prayer, the model prayer, which should truly... Um, inform the pattern of our prayer lives, it would be a prayer that would ultimately, the fulfillment of it, would bring us that joy. 
And we see it as Jesus prays, Jesus teaches this prayer. It starts out with Father. And most commentators say that that word was the Aramaic Abba, uh, Papa, Daddy. So the prayer begins with that intimacy and relationship with God. But it also speaks of the Father who is in heaven, the one who is higher than us, who is wiser than us. So it speaks of our, our devotion to him, our worship of him in our submission to him. And then he speaks what's on the, his heart that should be on our hearts. Hallowed be your name. Lord, may the earth see your holiness and proclaim you as holy and give you the glory due your name. And may the, the kingdom of God come that the, the cross is all about is reversing that curse that the kingdom, the original creation, might one day come and that we as believers might begin to work toward that end which Christ will ultimately fulfill to reverse aspects of the curse around us. And that, of course, God's will, because Jesus is all about God's will, he knows that's, that's what the joy of life is that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then he moves toward the kinds of prayers we should be praying for ourselves. What are those prayers that we should be praying that are going to ultimately not only bring us the joy that Jesus Christ has, but will move us on the path to Christ-likeness and will hallow God's name, bringing him glory. Let's pray. Our Father, I ask that your spirit would, would be our teacher today. Christ spoke these words. We know they'll only be received and the spirit opens our hearts to them, opens our hearts to you. Teach us, Lord, teach us to pray. Amen. We see three requests for ourselves. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses, lead us not into temptation. Each of these actually is a, is a uh, response to God that is critical to the Christian life. The first, give us this day our daily bread, or literally, give us today our bread for tomorrow. As We, we talked about this last week and, and showed that it is about physical bread, that we are dependent upon God every day, every moment for life itself, for all the physical nourishment to help us live day in and day out. And God has done that. He's made us dependent just as Israel was dependent upon the daily feeding of the manna. God made us, brought us into dependence because it, it's a, dependence is about relationship. The child is dependent upon his or her parents. So we are dependent upon God. And so we develop a thankful heart, a realization that we can trust the goodness of our parents. And that's why it's so important that we truly understand how much we rely upon God and how much he provides for us in the natural and physical realm. But we also saw that this is more than just about the daily bread. It is about a spiritual bread as well. Again, New Testament scholar Joachim Jeremias um, 
did a lot of research into the early church fathers, and he, he drew this conclusion. We know from ancient translations of the Lord's Prayer, both in the East and in the West, that in the early church, this eschatological understanding, bread of the age of salvation, bread of life, heavenly manner, was the familiar, if not predominant, interpretation of the phrase, bread for tomorrow. Since primeval times, the bread of life, the water of life, have been the symbols of paradise, an epitome of the fullness of all God's material and spiritual gifts. So throughout the ages, interpreters have understood that, yes, this is speaking about physical, but it's also speaking about spiritual bread, the type of bread that Jesus was speaking of in John 6, where he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, Whoever believes in me will never thirst. Of course, he's speaking in the spiritual dimension. Anything we hunger for, anything we thirst for in life itself, Jesus Christ says he has come to fulfill that. And that becomes the foundation of the Christian life. If we are completely fulfilled in Christ, we will not be seeking fulfillment for fulfillment outside of Christ. And that becomes the basis of sin. We don't sin because we just decide, let's, let's sin today. We always sin because we think we are getting something that will help fulfill us. But if we are completely fulfilled in Christ, we don't need to go outside of him. If I've had a large, very satisfying, filling meal... I am not getting up looking for more food because I'm already satisfied. If I have drunk enough to be satisfied my thirst and I'm all refreshed, I don't go looking for more water. If I am completely fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the bread of life, I don't go looking for some sense of fulfillment and other sin in my life. Jeremiah spoke of God providing cisterns, but we build cisterns that don't hold water. They don't bring satisfaction. And that's the foundation, again, of, of all of our sin. God has already provided what we need in Christ, but we build other aspects of our lives, often called idols, that we are using to replace God because we think that is what's going to bring us fulfillment. So the very foundation of our Christian life is realizing God's goodness, trusting his goodness, and finding satisfaction in him. If we look at the very first sin in the Bible, we see Eve has been placed in the garden. She has been given Everything, both Adam and Eve begin everything that they need for life itself. But the serpent comes and whispers to her, has God really given you absolutely everything? And the answer is no, he's not given us the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the serpent uses that to get, get her thinking then I don't have everything. 
For me to be completely and fully satisfied, I need to eat of that tree. And she does. The serpent promises that when you eat of that tree, that's actually the best tree, because if you eat of that one, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so Eve wants a, a whole more glorious identity of that of woman. She wants to be like God. She wants to be her own moral center, determining what's good and evil, what's right and wrong. And she feels that's what's going to satisfy her. Do you see? This, the base of her sin was not accepting all that God offers her. She thought there was a hole and she sought to fill it by disregarding God and going after the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Christian life starts by knowing Christ fully and completely, realizing that he has come to satisfy the core needs in our lives. We don't need to go looking for love in all the wrong places if we have found our full satisfaction in Christ. We don't need to go looking for significance in all the wrong places when we find our identity in Christ as a child of God. We don't need to find our comfort and security in all the wrong places if we turn to the cross and realize the vastness of God's love, his provision there, and his willingness to provide us everything we need. So we pray, give us this day our daily bread. And then we pray, forgive us our debts. And that's because grace is the second foundation to the Christian life. It's all about forgiveness. You know, a lot of our current, uh, our c current thinking in the church is, and this is good, that sin separates us from God. And that's true. But that's not necessarily the current thinking in our culture around us. And some churches have bought into that culture where we diminish sin, and when we diminish sin, we diminish the under, our understanding of the grace of God and what Christ did on the cross. Leon Morris captures this, this current thinking. He says, Man is quite content to get along amiably with his maker and does not regard his sin as a just cause for enmity. He's not greatly, he's not greatly concerned about the trifle of wrongdoing that's in him, and he cannot see why God should be concerned either. And that's a common attitude. God loves us. He doesn't really, sin doesn't really matter to him. It does. But this attitude creeps into the church as well. And not just today, it did in the first century. 1 John 1, 5 and 6, John speaking to Many who claim to be Christians said, This is the message we've heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. 
Sin is not trivial to God, and when we think it is, we say, I can walk in fellowship even though I entertain these sins in my life, and God says, that is a lie. The first reason it's so important to understand our need for forgiveness of sin is because it is through forgiveness that we maintain our relationship with Jesus Christ. The solution to our sin is not to minimize it, not to deny it, not to explain it away. The solution to our sin is to confess our sins, as John says a few verses later. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, what does it mean to confess? Confess literally means to say the same. To say the same about our sin that God himself is saying. It is to see sin through the eyes of God how it breaks his heart, how it harms us, how it harms our relationships around us. How it is really adultery because we have sought things outside of God that God himself and his relation seeks to provide us. And so when we see our sin that way, we confess it, we bring it to the Lord, and he forgives us our sin. So, The grace of God is so important in maintaining our day-to-day relationship. And I encourage you to study Psalm 51. That's David's psalm after he has committed sin with Bathsheba and Uriah, and he's finally realized it. There's a prayer where a man has united with God's understanding of sin. And it's interesting because at one point he says, asking for forgiveness, he says, restore the joy of my salvation. You see, before he went, committed those sins, he had a joy. It's the joy that Christ wants us all to have because he was living so closely and deeply in relationship with God. A second reason that grace is so important is because if we don't live by grace, we twist the Christian life into legalism. It becomes all about rules rather than a relationship with God. We become arrogant because we think we've lived up to it or completely defeated because we know we haven't lived up to it. We become judgmental of other people because we think we've arrived and now, but nobody else has arrived. And the Christian life becomes a burden, a joyless burden and weight upon us that Jesus himself said he came to lift because his burden is light. Uh, this again was captured, is captured by uh, the Richard Lovelace of the 17th century. He said, Christians who are no longer sure that God loves and accepts them in Jesus apart from their spiritual achievements are subconsciously radically insecure persons. They're much less secure than non-Christians because of the constant bulletins they receive from their Christian environment about the holiness of God and the righteousness they're supposed to have. Their insecurity shows itself in pride, a fierce defensive assertion of their own righteousness, and a defensive criticism of others. 
They come naturally to hate other cultural styles and other races in order to bolster their own security and discharge their suppressed anger. They cling desperately to legal pharisaical righteousness, but envy, jealousy, and other branches of the tree of sin grow out of their fundamental insecurity. What's he said? His Christians become all the more miserable and judgmental when they turn to a system of works instead of living under the grace and forgiveness of Jesus Christ, instead of living under the gospel. And it's been said many times and will be said many times from this pulpit. Christians start out trusting in the grace of Jesus Christ and the gospel, and very often we move away from that and move into a system of works and self effort apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the danger that we all face if we are not constantly praying, forgive us our sins, and knowing that God does based on the cross of Jesus Christ. A third reason that grace is so important to the Christian life is that it becomes the motivation for Christian living. It's interesting that he says here, forgive us our debts. Certainly he's speaking about our sins. It's our sins that need forgiveness. But he emphasizes the debt that sin brings. See, again, in, in a lot of people's minds, sin is something that's not good, but why can't God just say, oh, you sinned, I'll just forget about it. Why does there need to be a bloody sacrifice? God loves me, just forget about it. And what this word brings out is that sin always brings some sort of debt that needs to be paid. If you robbed me of a million dollars, well, you can rob me of a million dollars. If you robbed me of $10,000 and you spent it, and I come to you and I say, I forgive you. Somebody's out $10,000. Either you're going to say, well, I'll, I'll, I'll give it back to you. Or more likely, you don't have it. You can't pay it back. That's why you stole it in the first place. For me to forgive you, I am out $10,000. There's always a debt with sin. And might say, well, my sin, you know, it wasn't money debt. It was debt to God, the wages of sin. The debt of sin is death. Because of God's justice and his holiness and his righteousness, there is a debt to our sin, and that is death. And so this prayer doesn't simply say, forgive us our sins. It says, we need somebody to pay the debt. It's pointing to the cross of Jesus Christ. He took our death upon himself so that we could have life and we could have a forgiveness. And when we look to the cross and understand how vast his grace and love is, it moves our hearts. It becomes the motivation for Christian living. We see that in Luke chapter 7. There's the story of this immoral woman. Most would say she was a prostitute. 
and she came to a dinner Jesus was at. And at that dinner, she, she sees Jesus' dirty feet and she moves over to those feet. And here we have, in this picture, we have a woman who was a, far from God, who was betraying families, who was an outcast in society, had no purpose, no direction in life itself. And, and in this story, we say a transformed woman who has a new identity, who gives away her beauty as she washes his dirty, filthy feet where they're beautiful hair, who pulls, pours herself out at his feet in worship and in service, who takes perhaps most of her wealth in this amulet of perfume and breaks it to, put, to pour out on Jesus' feet. We see a woman completely transformed into giving her life to Jesus Christ. And the, the Pharisee who invited Jesus is scratching his head, but mainly at Jesus, why do you let this sinner touch you? And Jesus gives him a lesson. And through this parable, he teaches this lesson. He who is forgiven much loves much. He who is forgiven little loves little. See, that's why she is transformed. She loves me. And she loves me because she understands I first love her. She realizes the vastness of the forgiveness that Christ offers. And so she receives that. So, so you see, the Christian life is in many ways like an egg. We see the outside of it, the worship, the giving, the service, the obedience. Pharisees had that in spades. But God wants the heart. It's about love relationship that brings joy. This woman had that love. So all of our worship comes out of love. But where does that love come from? We love because he first loved us. It's when we grow in our realization of how much Christ has forgiven us, it begins to melt our hearts. His love melts our hearts. Love brings us into love with him and the joy of that relationship. And now we just live out of that. See, Grace is the motivation, the center of Christian living. And he prays, give us our daily bread, forgive us our trespasses. Oh, I can't miss this. It's, he does say, as we, are for, as we forgive our debtors. Now, that sounds like a works that I have. If I forgive my debtors, Jesus will forgive me. That's not what he's saying. We know that from the rest of Scripture. And Jesus gives us a parable in Matthew 18 that essentially teaches this lesson. We forgive. We're able to forgive because we first understand the forgiveness of Christ. The story is of a slave who owed his, the king a zillion dollars. It's kind of the way Jesus put it. And the king forgives him completely, and it's like, ooh, that's good. And now he finds, uh, he finds a fellow slave who owes him you know, maybe $10,000, $20,000. And he throws that man in prison. He won't forgive him. The king hears about this. He brings him back. And he says, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. Should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And see what he's saying is, 
if you really understood grace, if you really appreciated the forgiveness that I have given to you, you would naturally forgive others. So this statement isn't a work statement to get forgiveness. It's a question, have we really gotten the grace and forgiveness of Jesus Christ? Do we really understand the cross? Because we'll pass that on to others. So lead us not into temptation. Every commentator I read, I think every sermon I ever heard on this, points immediately to James 1, which says that God, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil. He himself tempts no one. So it sounds like we're praying, God, don't tempt us. And James says, you don't need to pray that. God would never tempt you. So what's going on here? Well, Don Carson and uh, and others have pointed out that this is most likely a a figure of speech called a latote. And in the latote, you speak a positive by negating the opposite of what you want to say. So if I want to say, that was really good, I'll say, ah, not bad, not bad. Or if I want to say, you know, I'm going to remember you in a special way, I'll say, I'm never going to forget you. And if we're going to pray, God, I want spiritual victory, I want to overcome, I want you and your power to overcome temptation, my, the temptations in my life, we'd say, lead me not into temptation. Again, Jeremiah's Uh, brings out that there was an ancient Jewish prayer that may have actually informed this part of Jesus' prayer, and it goes like this. Let my foot, lead my foot not into the power of sin. Bring me not into the power of iniquity, not into the power of temptation, not into the power of anything shameful. What he's saying is, Lord, give me the power to be overcoming any power of sin, temptation, iniquity, and shame that comes my way. So we need the fullness of Christ, and we'll we'll stray from him so that we need the grace of forgiveness to keep us in that relationship. And then we need to live moment by moment overcoming the power of these temptations through the Spirit of God. The last phrase, deliver us from evil, is certainly a parallel to lead us not into temptation. But literally, it's saying deliver us from the evil. It has the article with it. And this occurs in two other places in Matthew. And one where it says, let your yes be yes and your no be no, anything else is of the evil. And the other place is in the parable of the seeds and the sower where the the first seed falls on a rock and the bird comes and steals it away. The word of the kingdom of God is stolen away. He says it's stolen away by the evil. And so NIV's translation really makes sense where it says, deliver us from the evil one. But again, most commentators would, would merge the two to be delivered from the evil is actually to be delivered from the evil one. To be delivered from the evil one is actually to be delivered from the evil. 
But in these two Matthew passages, we see clearly the types of temptations that Satan is going to bring. The first, let your yes be yes, your no be no. Anything else is of the evil. Any lies are the evil. Why? Because Satan is the great liar. He has all sorts of lies. We see it in the Garden of Eden. He's saying the first lie is God does not want to fulfill you. He has not provided for you. You cannot trust the nature of God. Second lie, you will not be judged. Sin doesn't really matter. In fact, that isn't even sin. Third lie we see there is you will be fulfilled by this tree. This will fulfill you. That's every temptation whispers to you. It becomes a commercial in your ears. This will fulfill you. This will satisfy you. We need to avoid those lies, all the lies of Satan. Second passage is Satan steals away the word of the kingdom of God. Again, it's like him, the bread of life. All that the kingdom is going to come, all that is promised there is ultimately spiritually fulfilled in Christ right now. He wants to rob us of that truth. That Christ is our fulfillment. When we are tempted, we turn to Christ to be fulfilled. What's very interesting is if, if I ask somebody, a Christian, mature Christian, how do, you live by the, how do you live out the Christian life so that you have joy and you have the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, etc.? They would say, you walk by the power of the Holy Spirit don't have time to show you but these three responses to God are the steps in walking with the Spirit of God. It's abiding in Christ. That's the only way you can bear fruit. The only way you can bear spiritual fruit is to abide in Christ. So that means you're going to be spiritually fulfilled by Christ, the bread of life. We need to walk in the light John never uses the phrases, walk in the Spirit. His parallel is walk in the light. How do you walk in the light? If we confess our sins and receive the grace of Jesus Christ. And how do we have that power moment by moment for all the temptations? Galatians 5 says, do not walk in the flesh, but in the Spirit. It's moment by moment, choosing the things of God, because we are fulfilled by God. What does Jesus Christ want for you? He wants your complete joy. That joy is the same joy that he has experienced from eternity past. Jesus says, I want that joy for you. Pray this way. Our Lord, we thank you for answering the disciples' prayer and answering ours. Teach us to pray. May the truths of your word, and I know we have just scratched the surface for there's so many other aspects of this prayer, but may these truths resonate in our hearts. Amen. Would you join me in uh, this prayer, calling upon God to lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil? I'll read the top and you read what's
and yellow. From all evil and mischief, from pride, vanity, and hypocrisy, from envy, hatred, and malice, and from all evil intent, good Lord, deliver us. From sloth, worldliness, and love of money, from hardness of heart and contempt of your word and your laws, good Lord, deliver us. From sins of body and mind, from the deceits of the world, the flesh and the devil, good Lord, deliver us. By your agony and trial, by your cross and passion, by your precious death and burial, good Lord, deliver us by your mighty resurrection, by your glorious ascension, by your sending of the Holy Spirit, good Lord, deliver us. Hear our prayers, O Lord our God. Hear us, good Lord.